Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Did you practice all day? Twice. Twice? Why? You did it after sitting, that's what it sounds like. Oh. Sounds better than Oh, very good. Very good, Nagazina. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to read you a little something from Chuang Tzu. And we'll go from there. The autumn floods had come. Thousands of wild torrents poured furiously into the Yellow River. It surged and flooded its banks until, looking across, you could not tell an ox from a horse on the other side. Then the river god laughed, delighted to think that all the beauty in the world had fallen into his keeping. So downstream he swung until he came to the ocean. There he looked out over the waves toward the empty horizon in the east, and his face fell. Gazing out at the far horizon, he came to his senses and murmured to the ocean god, well, the proverb is right. He who has got himself a hundred ideas thinks he knows more than anybody else. Such a one am I. Only now do I see what they mean by expanse. Hmm? that nice? Yeah. You should hang it up in your house somewhere. <clears throat> and the ocean god replied, can you talk about the sea to a frog in a well? Hmm? Can you talk about ice to dragonflies? Can you talk about a way of life to a doctor of philosophy? Chuang Tzu, you know, Chuang <laughs> Tzu. Uh, we speak of uh, three pillars, the three pillars of knowledge. Uh, on one side, we have the pillar of philosophy. And on one side, we have the pillar of science. And then we have the middle pillar, which is religion. And the pillar on the, on the right and the pillar on the left are to be handmaidens to this middle pillar. Mm -hmm. They help us to understand what religion is. Not theology or anything like that, but religion.
That's what it's supposed to do. <clears throat> so that things always point to an ultimate, to an absolute. They point, always point, always point. Science points to an ultimate. It does not say it has it. Every once in a while it thinks it does. But you know, when they discovered that there was no matter, it was all energy, now we know what it's all about. You know, and then they discovered the pieces that went to make up. Now they got atoms, and then they finally, you know, they could even divide the atoms. So it goes on and on and on. Everything's always pointing to something. And the same with philosophy. It points to something. Now, Chuang Tzu uh, lived about four centuries before the Christ. And uh, he was a proponent of Lao Tzu's Taoism. Some people think that he was a student of Lao Tzu. I don't know whether he was or not. But uh, he brings out that the difference uh, between this handmaiden of philosophy and this middle pillar of religion is like comparing the understanding in the depth that Jesus had. Now, the understanding that Jesus had with that which is called the religion of the church. Hmm? What Jesus understood and knew, that we would call religion. What the church has is theology, mostly. I mean, it, you can't say that altogether. Some people in the church actually know what's going on. They do. Hmm? But many people do not know uh, what was intended sometimes, you know, when Jesus spoke. I mean, he, you know, in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And, you know, it's a very perplexing thing. I mean, if I know what's going on, I'm not going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to be rich in spirit. I'm supposed to be rich in spirit, not poor in spirit. How can I be poor in spirit? Jesus says to be poor in spirit. What's he talking about? A good question, huh? What is this poor in spirit? Yeah? What Taoism has degenerated into today is a kind of a spiritualism. It's, uh, they have a communication with the ancestor spirits, you know, which in this country we now call channeling. You know, acting as a medium. We used to call them mediums for the spirits. You know, after every after the after we after there's war, this kind of a thing swells, you know, and then it begins to die down. Then another war comes along, and it swells again, always coming by a different name, but same thing, you know. In Taoism, they now speak of the instead of you know the river god and the fret and fuss and so on and so on. They speak about flying pencils. You know, which is um, uh, so-called guided handwriting. You know, you sit there with a pencil until somebody takes over, and and then you write. 
or you don't, you, you're thinking you're not writing, but some spirit is writing through you. Be very careful with that. You know, it's, it's you know, on the Ouija board and all these things, which is certainly a far cry from the original um, Taoism, which I think was around before Lao Tzu, although Lao Tzu did get it down into a book, book of 5,000 characters. And uh, Chuang Tzu uh, was called the true man of Nan Hua. Now, Nan Hua was the place of his birth. It was called that for a short while. And to be a true man is the, it considered the highest achievement in the Taoism, in Taoism, in the Taoistic thought. To be a true man. So the early patriarchs in China, such as Wang Po and Matsu and Lin Chi, you know, uh, they use such phrases. And, you know, Lin Chi, they have it written, you know, when he would get up to speak to the assembly, he would say to them, look, look, you beginners, look. Hmm? There is a true man of no rank that is entering and leaving the gates of your face. Who is this true man of no rank? You know, we, we like rank. I am above, he is below, or sometimes it's the other way around and we're a little uncomfortable that he is above and I am below. We like ranks. But this is a true man that has no rank. Yeah. Who is this true man? everyday living, this that we call life, uh, is supposed to be experience, experiencing. It's not thinking and it's not uh, a theory. Living isn't a theory. ask, you know, how often do you actually think about the life itself? Life as, as a itself. Or what is this consciousness itself? What is it? What is this life? And life that lives us, you know, it doesn't need any explanations as to right and wrong. It doesn't have any this and that. There is no duality in the life. The duality is in our thinking, not in life. And if there is no duality, what then needs explanation? We're always looking for explanations. Maybe it's because we think. And so we need explanations for what we think. 
And when we seek explanation, the Tao itself is obscured. The Tao becomes obscured through this small comprehension of this mind. Hmm? Our limited thinking obscures the limitless. So the small limits the vast. Incredible as that may seem, it's true. But we can look out the window. See, this is easier for you. You look out the window. You see the tree and the grass and the birds. You look at it good. Where is the right and the wrong? Hmm? If there's a right and a wrong about it, where is it? Hmm. You know, right and wrong, this and that, are points of view, theories. That view comes from this. And this view is a consequence of that. See, we're going back and forth between all the time. See, we have this theory that opposites produce something. Hmm? We now affirm this, and we now deny that. And then we deny this, and we affirm that. It's like, you know, the three in the morning and the four in the afternoon, or vice versa, the monkeys. Yeah. We're swinging on a pendulum, and totally forgotten is the fulcrum. This is right, that is wrong. This is right, that is wrong. On what are we swinging? There is a fulcrum. It is that on which this pendulum swings. Are there really, really two points of view, the this and the that, the right and the wrong? If you have not found this point of correspondence, and let's call it the pivot, to find this pivot, if, you, we haven't, if we don't have this pivot, then we're caught in the duality and we're swinging from Yes to no, to no to yes, yes. Back and forth and back and forth. Hmm? As soon as one finds his pivot, you know, one can stand on it as if one is standing on the center. And then you can, you, for the moment, you can picture, have this image of all the thoughts swimming around this pivotal point. Hmm? And from this pivotal point, without leaving it, one can respond to this and respond to that and respond to the other without becoming identified. One is simply viewing. Hmm? Oh, affirming this, that they're affirming that. Well, fine. Yeah. So it has been said, <clears throat> there is nothing quite like the proper light of mind. Yeah. People all over the world 
put themselves into all kinds of odd positions with their questions and their answers. They, they, they have something and they, they, you know, is this true? Is that false? You like one, so you identify with it. Liking something and identifying with it is really kind of an attitude toward. It doesn't make it true. It's just because you like it. Hmm? You know, the word religion, religiere, means to yoke back to the beginning or before the beginning, to the beginningless beginning. to the chaos, if you would, huh? to turn around and see from whence you have come. And in this sense, it is not a question. It is an action, you know? And in this life that we then see, we find ourselves existing, which means that we stand out. We think we stand out. Here I am. I'm standing out. Huh? You notice me, standing out. We think we stand out in the midst of all this nature and all the growing and the living and the dying elements coming together and separating. You know, we think we stand out. We're part of it. Hmm? You know, always the invitation, come and be one with it. Come and be one with it. And there is that in us, which now and then pokes up its head and beckons. Hmm? We have within us an invitation to move into what we are. The welcoming mat has always been out. experience, and you know. It is not the knowing of reading a book. It is not what we call knowing, you know, hearing somebody talk about something and say, so, oh yeah, I understand that. Uh -huh. That's still not the knowing in the sense of the noesis, that quality of the mind, that light of the mind. Hmm? To know by that light See, when that kind of an experience occurs, you become the life, the life becomes you. This is an experience, we call it an experience of reality. It is not a solution to your question. It is an experience. Hmm? And you know, the Bhagavad Gita puts it very nicely. The dewdrop slips into the shining sea. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think it's in the light of Asia that he goes one step further and says, the dewdrop swallows the shining sea. It doesn't say it's an answer to a question. It doesn't say it's a solution. It's an experience. 
Now, if you lived as if you were a drop of the ocean, in the ocean, where are your boundaries? Hmm? From whence, from whom, then would you be separated? In this identifying with what we like, we hear something and, and, oh yeah, you know, it fits in with what I know, with what I have read. So we pick it up. It doesn't make it true. We identified with it because we liked it. Yeah. If we keep on doing this, we find ourselves in a kind of a cul-de-sac. We're stuck in some kind of a theory. And some people do believe that these theories, these points of view, are true answers. And we all have theories of some kind. Do you realize how much you cling to your theories, your points of view. Mm. And if someone asks you to let go of a particular theory, if I let go, what have I got? Nothing. Huh? And so we take a conceptual theory, a conceptual entity, we could say, for here. Uh, we take it for real existence. And this is called reification. Hmm. And we think the reification is a consolation, you know, because we now we think we know something. is thinking that you know. You know, our minds work very similarly to, the, to our other senses. Yeah, this is maybe why Buddhism calls it the sixth sense, seventh sense, eighth sense. How many senses do we have? Eighteen, I think, altogether. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we have sight, Hearing, touch, taste, smell, and mind, the sixth sense. Right today on the moon. The eye is empty of itself. Otherwise, you wouldn't see anything. Hmm? The eye. There is an energy system, high energy system, energy system that impinges. The energy is, you know, is emitting and it impinges on this empty eye. <clears throat> and the nervous system and the brain, the synapses, everything comes to attention. You know, they're all doing their thing. 
the rods and the cones change chemically. <clears throat> you know, you might ask Bob Cohen sometime when he's down here, <clears throat> he being in the eye business. I ask him every several years or so, what about it? Do scientists know now how come we see? And the answer still is no. We do not know how come finally we see. Interesting, isn't that? Now the mind works sort of in a pattern like seeing does. How come we can think? Yeah. <clears throat> but all of this mishmash is going on with the nervous system and the brain and the rods and the cones, and all of a sudden inside of us there's this picture, or an image, huh? We've imaged something. We made a gestalt because this energy was moving too fast, and we couldn't cope with it. So we, oh, yeah, look at that. You know, the images in here, we projected out there, so that's what it looks like, color and all. It's a tremendous mechanism. I mean, think of it. Look at everything. We, our eyes wander around, and all of this, we're projecting out all over the place. And it all started <clears throat> long, like 200,000 years ago, uh, when we uh, were working very hard at developing an ego. That's how it came about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, look, I see a tree. It happens so fast, that abstracting process, you can't even keep up with it. You can't even keep up with yourself anymore. Much more or less the energy out there. <clears throat> but you notice also what we say. Look, there is a tree. Huh? There is an organ. There are some flowers. Yeah. This is, we say, is. Now, this is not the isness of Buddhism, where in the final analysis it just is. No, this is the isness of identification. This is one of Aristotle's laws, so called laws, huh? That is, is. And you know what? That's the end of the report. Cl close the mind. That is. Hmm? The mind is no longer open to see or to understand. And have you any idea how far you carry this thing? Hmm? Hmm. This isness, this identification. How closely do you observe yourself? This is a rose. This is a canna. Hmm? This is a man. This is a woman. This is my karma. This is my dharma. This is what I believe. Don't rock the boat and tell me any facts. You know, this is. Yeah. There is no room for any further explanations. It's a terrible thing what we have done to ourselves. What we are doing to ourselves. We've locked ourselves in a pen, you know, like in a box. 
And we have done it all with words, with language, with concepts, with ideas, with theories, you know, reifying. Hmm? We speculate. We conjecture. And we have in our reification system many rungs on a ladder above and below. Sometimes I'm a little further ahead and sometimes a little further behind, but I'm on there somewhere. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, what I'm talking about right now, in a way, is general semantics. Hmm? It's the abstracting process, which Count Korzybski and this country, uh, he started at the molecular level and, and developed the 10 steps, the 10 phases of abstracting. In the Avatamsaka, which is uh, <clears throat> from around the 9th century, I would say, uh, it's the Hua Yen of China, they list 22 to 24 steps of abstracting. I mean, very fine analysis. Very fine analysis. Someday, maybe we get all settled down, I'll go through the whole thing again. There's some of you here that have not heard it. Abstracting. It's interesting to me, but I say that usually and everybody goes, hmm. You know, it, <laughs> it takes, it takes the thought to follow it, you see, so it's difficult. You just can't, I don't just, just sit here and let you laugh it off. Now, what we have with our theories, with our concepts and notions and ideas, our abstracting, what we wind up with, is a map. Hmm? Mm -hmm. We have a map of the territory. Look at that, where I'm coming from and where I'm going and what this is all about, hoop-de-doo. I have got a map of the whole thing so I understand it. I know exactly where to go. And we say that this is a map of the territory. This is a map of the territory, and the territory is. Well, now we got a problem. The territory is. Is this territory the realm of the spirit? Is this territory of which you have this map, is it the realm of nature? Is this territory the realm of science? Is this territory the realm of psychology? What could be this territory? Maybe it's, it's all of them put together. Well, gee whiz, what a territory that is, huh? Wowie. What kind of a map do you have? Hmm? Do you look at that once in a while? Hmm. And then when we say, is it true to the territory, you, you've got a map of an unknown territory? That's ridiculous. Huh? Yeah. And people are so proud of their maps. This I know and that I know, and, and they've got a map of an unknown. And the unknown, they don't bother to look at. No. And now and then comes along somebody, and I think we've met a few, who has actually seen this territory for what it really is, and then, uh, you know, talks a little bit about it so that we may know something about the territory so that we have a better map. 
It's rather stupid not to listen, huh? Well, that's in my book anyway, my framework of my map. You know, <clears throat> and we go through this often, bring a little child a flower. And the child doesn't know the name of the flower because it, the kid doesn't have any words yet. How can it name a flower without any words? See, without words, you can't think. has no name, has no category to put it in, but it sees this energy system. And uh, he looks, and the colors just flood through him. Hmm? He experiences a living moment. <clears throat> and then someone comes to him and says, oh, but this is a rose. And the mystery's all gone. The colors are out there now. You know. From now on, whenever he sees a, a similar flower, the label pops up. This is a rose. This is a rose. This is a rose. Hmm? This is how we are. Yeah? You know, the great god Thoth, out of Egypt, you know, <clears throat> he went to his superior. maybe. And he said to his superior, <laughs> I like this superior. I made out an application for something one day and somebody was assisting me. And so they he came to this part was, you know, who is your superior? And she looked at me and she says, well, we could put down God, couldn't we? And I said, yeah, yes, we could. So that's the way it went through. <laughs> yeah. but anyway, this God tossed you know, was, was easy. he comes to this, his superior, and he says, you know, I've watched these human beings on earth, and I've watched them work, and I've watched them plod along, and I've watched them wear themselves out, trying to have shelter and enough to eat and have some clothing, and I would like to reward them, you know. And so he said, I will teach them a language and I will teach them to write. And this will give them wisdom. And his superior just sat there and very sadly shook his head. And he said, no, you are taking away their wisdom. You will not help by giving them words. The words will cover the wisdom. Hmm? So this, <clears throat> what is called wisdom, the noesis, huh? no words. So I say it often, you know, look, but don't talk. You know, look, but don't interpret. Look, but don't have an opinion. Look, but don't say how pretty. That's your opinion. Hmm? You're throwing away the whole thing for an opinion. You know? How pretty, how ugly. An opinion. You think that's worth it? Hmm. 
when there is no thinking, there is silence. There is a silence of a non-thinking mind. And in this non-thinking mind, there is no barrier. That is, there is no ego. It is as if the rose merges into the heart and the heart merges into the rose. No boundaries. There is no subject-object. No me and you. No I and other. Hmm? In this very brief moment of this wonder, there is oneness. And then comes a word. And the word is repeated and repeated and repeated. And we say the child is growing in knowledge. Hmm. Of course, it is very necessary, I mean extremely necessary, that we learn language. The more, the better. You know? We need labels for things. We need tags for things. But let us realize there is a something more, that all the languages are labels. Labels for our thoughts, labels for things, labels for images. Hmm? That the experiences of a life, the experiences of reality, are still happening and can keep right on happening if we watch ourselves and know the difference, that we're not so identified with the words. And some of you have had some taste of it. We see that what we find is an unknown territory. if we throw away our maps. You know, there is an old koan that I like that has to do with this. When I started my search, rivers were rivers and mountains were mountains. And then something happened and rivers were no longer rivers and mountains were no longer mountains. And then something happened, and now I know, now noetically, no, without words and without concepts, I know. Rivers are once again rivers, and mountains are once again mountains. But I have to know all that in between. Hmm? Yeah. A non-thinking knowing, an experiencing knowing. And sometimes we call this experiencing knowing and ignorance. Hmm? An ignorance that knows. We cover it with words, this tremendous ignorance of the fundamental consciousness. Yeah. You know, all the interpretations that we carry, because, you know, they're interpretations. Hmm? Interpretations of what we see and what we hear. And our investment in our interpretations is so vast and so dear to us, how could we possibly give them up?
If a person has devoted his life to being a Christian, and someone comes along and says something very unkind against Christianity, how hurt he is. Hmm? How immediately his feathers are ruffled. Look at the hostility. He's belligerent. Hmm? We could say the same for Hinduism, for Buddhism, for Zen, for Vedanta, for the Islam, you name it, all of them. Whatever you have invested in, whatever it is, it needs a good checking over now and then. I mean, I don't want you to get out of it, I just want you to check it over, what you have picked up out of it. Yeah. And you've got to check with an open mind. Can you do that? Yeah. <clears throat> most religious people say that it is the truth that is the most important. Most important of all is truth. Then why should you be hurt? Hmm? Hmm. Make an inquiry. That's terribly important. <clears throat> what are you believing and why? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so many people say, well, my father walked this path and I tread in his footsteps. That's no answer. You're going nowhere. The barrier that we have, <clears throat> of course, is this ego. Because it's not basically a question of Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or Vedanta or Zen. Any of them being right or wrong. It's a question of this ego. I'm right. You're wrong. The most horrible thing of all that we can do to ourselves. I'm right and you're wrong. You know, there is in Newsweek this week, uh, an article on uh, political psychology. Why we all love to hate. Hmm? And it goes on to say, this psychology goes on to say, we have a need for enemies. We have a need for enemies for our human development. This is what the psychologists have come up with. <clears throat> A little child carrying a teddy bear trips, and of course it slaps the bear. It's all the bear's fault. See, this is our projection all the time, projection. We have a need for a goat that we can project certain things on. Hmm? It is simply a projection of the problem away from ourselves. You know, when I was about, what, 25, I had a whole system in my head. I was going to write a book of why there is, we have so much hate in the world and so little love. I was going to write it in the form of a novel. I had it all figured out. It's still sitting back there somewhere. You know, <clears throat> we, with hate, we can project it out. We throw it away. We have a goat. We throw it away. You know, like he, in the, in the ancient uh, Hebrew days, uh, the rabbi would, he brought in, I think it was two goats, and one of them 
they gave all their bad things to and then drove him out in the forest where he could starve. And the one that they gave all the good things to, they saved. Something along that line. It's not quite correct, but something like that, you know. <clears throat> we want to project the problem away from ourselves. When we love, you take it in. It is much easier to try to get rid of it than to cope with it. Hmm? So I can't be wrong. No. And so we argue and we fight in all kinds of ways. This is the hostility of the ego. You know, get rid of it. Get rid of it. This get rid of it, you know, it, it covers a very real problem, this hostility. <clears throat> We're actually fighting life. We're trying to fight life, and so we, we develop this hostility. <clears throat> We're trying to conquer. You know, somehow I'm going to climb this ladder and I'm going to be on the top rung and I have conquered the whole thing. Yeah. We want to conquer life and that's an impossibility. You can live life, you can experience life, but you cannot conquer it. No. You can conquer your illusions about it. Yeah. But not the life itself. The theories that we have, most of them are our manipulation about life or trying to manipulate it, huh? <clears throat> if you've got a certain theory, why you can think or you can pretend at least that you're the master. Well, I know all this. Look how great I am. And then somebody comes along that knows more and, <laughs> you know? And you know, in all of this, what is happening is that you're simply, very subtly, strengthening the ego, all unbeknownst to you. And we have so many ways of doing this. Shoo, 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 shoo. Hmm. You know, somebody comes along, and some little nobody you know, comes along and says, when you, after all, you're so great, this little nobody comes along and says, well, I don't think you're really searching correctly. What do you do? You turn away. Hmm? Maybe you pretend to listen. Because there is something in us that is sincere. Truly. Hmm? Something in us really does want to know. But then, when the ego gets the upper hand, we slip further and further away, this very subtle, to us, non-observable ego. How great we are! How sweet it is! <laughs> huh? Yeah. Why not just shut up and get out of the way? Hmm? 
Hmm? How deep in you is that idea of conquering? Hmm? When we sit, somehow the notion, the tag ends of it, you can see it. It's present. Mm-hmm. We're going to conquer this unknown. We're going to conquer God. Yeah. After all, isn't this why we're sitting? We're going to get up there and help him run this universe. Hmm? This struggle to know, you know, this fight that we have to break through the barrier, this hammering at this unseen barrier, this impenetrable wall that we're always facing. You know, we go back to Chuang Tzu here in the beginning. He said, how can you explain the expanse to a frog in the well? Now, in all of our thinking, has it ever occurred to us that conquering is not the way? Hmm? Holding a club over the head of enlightenment is going to get you nowhere. <laughs> huh? All you're supposed to do is pay attention. I holler it and yell and say, please pay attention. Pay attention! You know? Anyway, from down here, low, deep, pay attention. <laughs> Screaming like a fishwife. <laughs> you know? Pay attention. It, it, sitting doesn't mean to withdraw into yourself with a sword, you know, that where you're going to conquer. The sword is already hanging over your head. This is the sword of Mandrushri. You should see this thing. <clears throat> Just be quiet. Just be quiet enough to see what is present. No thinking, no disturbing feelings, just quiet, just attention. And silence is there because there is no disturbance. So you have got a silent attention. It's not just being passive. You know, oh my God, I'm sitting here, I'm doing nothing, and I'm waiting, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting, you know. I'm nothing, I'm waiting. That's not going to do it. That's, it's, actually, that's very bad, if I may use the term. <laughs> this silent attention, see, attention. You're wooing, as it were. You are receptive. If there is a noise, if there is any commotion in you, this is a, what we call part of samsara. Samsara is the world of activity. Samsara. And then there is a world of nirvana, which means blown out. It is silent. Nirvana is silent. Samsara is noisy. These are the two aspects, one within the other. It is one world, 
even though we have the two aspect, aspects of noumenal and phenomenal. If there is lots of changing, if there is ideation, if there is feeling, if there is this, all this movement, this is the realm of samsara. If the samsara will just shut up, then there is nirvana. It's blown out. It's a samsara is blown out. Not, the whole, not everything is blown out. It's samsara that's blown out. Hmm? And then when you're back, why do you pick up samsara again? You can't live without it. Hmm? But gee, let's find out what's this other blown out. Yeah. What am I when I'm blown out? Hmm. In China, you know, in the old Taoism, they spoke of the activity of heaven. The activity of heaven. <coughs> So you ask yourself <clears throat> in this whole procedure, your journey into your inner realms, this initiatory process, are you supposed to be active or passive? Now you should all know the answer because I told you a little while ago part of it. We go into meditation most of the time with this attitude of conquering, and of course that's, that's an active attitude. How can you conquer without some activity? Hmm? Yeah. So, the activity of heaven now we have. We're going to conquer this heaven. The activity of heaven. Heaven is not the passive object. We are not the passive subject. Heaven is not meek and mild. Passive object. Huh? Heaven, the activity of enlightenment, the activity of awakeness. That's the subject. We are the object. And we've got it the other way around when we try to conquer. Hmm? Remember Lynch's places, positions of meditation. We have subject, object, object, subject. Subject only, object only. And then the fifth. Huh? Hmm. Meister Eckhart put it very well. <clears throat> he said, in the course of nature, it is really the higher which is ever more ready to pour out its power into the lower then the lower is ready to receive it. For there is no darth of God 
What darth there is, is wholly ours, who make not ready to receive its grace. With the grace comes, then, the invitation to enlightenment, which is a gift of faith. We may go into that next week, maybe. I've got to get the frog out of the well. <laughs> and now <clears throat> may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another and I thank you very much If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.